0: Let's keep it with you. Talk about how you feel. How I feel, how do I feel? you. (gasps) You sit there with a mass murderer, a mass murderer, your heart rate is jacked, your hand
1: steady. That's one thing I figured out about myself in prison, my hand
0: does not shake. Wake the fuck up. jaw you broke happens to work undercover for the Boston Police Department. I'm going fucking nuts, man. I can't be someone else every fucking day. It's been a year of this. I've had enough of this shit. Calm down, all right? Most of the people in the world do it every day. What's the big deal? Well, I'm not them, all right? I'm not fucking them, okay? Exactly. You're nobody. You signed the papers, remember? Now, we're the only two people on the face of this earth that even know you're a cop. How about we just erase your file, huh? How about that? How about we erase your file, and then bang, you're just another soldier for Costello, open to arrest for I don't know how many felonies, huh? They do say we do that, Captain? How about I uh, fucking right, kill you, hey, huh? How about I on. fucking on. kill you? Telling that was a joke. Uh, it wasn't a joke. Just because you play a tough guy doesn't mean you are when you lace curtain Irish fucking pussy. Hey, 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 hey stop it! Break it up! Stop it! Fuck you, motherfucker! God damn it, stop it! That's an order! You can't stay here to be with her. I'm not. Saito's dead by now. That means he's down here somewhere. That means I have to find him. I can't stay with her anymore because she doesn't exist. I'm the only thing. With all your complexity, all your perfection, all your imperfection. You're right. Look at you. You're just a shade. You're just a shade of my real wife. You were the best that I could do, but. I'm sorry, you're just not good enough. <laughs>
2: Welcome back. I've had a little bout of illness, caused a little bit of a delay, but uh, I hope you enjoy what i put together here. I wanted to have a couple of bullet points on last episode before I get into today's topic. First of all, the whole non-Demic story is falling apart at the seams. I've heard people predicting this. problem is, a lot of the measures are staying in place and people are going along with it. So we'll we'll talk about that. I heard some good news. There's an Ohio case. There's cases all over the USA. I've heard a few of them, where local sheriffs are arresting governors for, for uh, violating their oaths of office. So that's just fantastic. There's one in Ohio that uh, Bobby Kennedy is involved with. So that was just a pipe dream of mine in my last episode, that I was hoping that somebody would get on that and the Americans are way ahead of me. So that's fantastic. I don't know what the mechanism is in the parliamentary system. This should be happening in Canada and the UK big time. It, it, the mechanism's got to be there. I just don't know what, what uh, the language is around it. There was one news story, a father. I think this is just a really good example of, of uh, what really the scope of this solo cast today. There was a father who refused to do the measures, but he wanted to see his son's football game. So he decided that he would quietly sit in the outside of the stadium. He was in the outfield, outside of the stadium. There was an opening in the fence, all alone, out in the corner, and minding his own business. No protests, no signs, nothing. No, Not trying to get attention or anything. Well, didn't the uh, superintendent of schools threatened to this at halftime threatened to cancel the game if this guy didn't go away or mask himself so the coach of the suns team who they clearly know each other personally came over and tried this is like the ultimate in gaslighting but tried to get the father to feel bad for getting the game canceled because he's minding his own business out <laughs> alone in this outside of the stadium to watch his son's game and the father was really civilized and polite and made all the right points in my opinion and he even pointed out that the coach himself considers himself a history buff so he said i'm not i'm not i don't want to do this any more than anybody else but but uh, this is for this is about freedom. This is much bigger than a football game. And then he said, "I thought you were a history buff, coach. I mean, don't you understand the difference between tyranny and freedom?" I thought it was a really powerful exchange and a and a and a uh, an excellent symbol on how to quietly conduct yourself under civil disobedience and hold your ground as well. I was very impressed with that, Dad. I also stumbled across a great. Uh, podcast. I didn't know Corbett Report. I've I've been getting introduced to him through the Dollar Vigilante channel mostly, I think, and I've always loved him, but I didn't know his connection to off-grid living. He's living somewhere in Japan, in the foothills, and uh, he's quite an expert in off-grid and agorism. I think that, I mean, it's a tagline of his show, which I didn't notice until now, but any he had a fantastic episode. Uh, somebody asked him the sustainability of living off grid. They said something like, Well, you know, so what? I get a few friends, we go, we get some property, we go live off grid, and then six months later, my tractor breaks. I have to call John Deere. Uh, I have to pay, you know, by fiat currency. And basically, you get sucked back into the grid, you know, because you've the, some of the essentials of life require that you're connected to the grid. And so there was a really excellent discussion on everything that was brought up in that in that uh reasonable question. And so I shared the link on the podcast page. And there's a whole community of people called agorists, or it's agorism. And there's a Polish guy that did a TED talk. That link is there as well. That came up with this very same conundrum. He graduated, oh uh, yeah, it was it was engineering. But he he graduated, he was doing the same thing. He was as a as a hobby, he was he had a hobby farm, tractor broke, and he came to the very same conclusion. So this uh, Polish man came up with this concept of uh, open source machines. And so they and end established a community around it. So they've got it like a dVd cd-ROM um, that's got twenty five of the most important machines you can build a community around essentially and they're open source so you can download these the build instructions are there If you have a community people that have some skills you can create your own community all with open source tools and machines I know that sounds extremely Ambitious, but the fact is people have been working on this for at least a decade So to me it was a powerful discovery. There's the other aspect which I guess I don't have a perfectly good answer, but there's the social aspect as well. Nobody really wants to... I mean, I just came out of a corporate community that was beautifully conceived. It was like a California-gated community, the way it was is in the Middle East, in, in Saudi Arabia, but it was beautifully conceived, beautifully manicured. Now, it, you'll never get a bigger community than that. Now, imagine if that if that community had declared itself the off-grid community socially you still feel disconnected from the world right you just want freedom of movement you want to be able to get on a plane you want to go see your aunt millie when she's sick you you want to you, you don't want to close yourself in behind the gate so anyway that's going to be a topic for a future discussion the social aspect of going off grid but the reality is you want to exist off grid but be able to to interface when you have to I, I think that's the in a nutshell I'm completely new to this entire space so since this this Corbett report but I'm optimistic I think it's really exciting and I will definitely be schooling myself on it in the next six months but I wanted to share that with you uh, Lark and Rose had two excellent pieces one is um one is called election day these are both on YouTube or on Lark and Rose's channel election day where he just demonstrates like how ridiculous this dichotomy that (laughs) that they've got us thinking you know that constantly voting for the lesser of two evils is going to get us anywhere so uh, he he and his wife amanda uh, did this fantastic little role play in a cabin in the woods and i think it really makes the point it's less than five minutes i think about election day but on top of that he's done He's done a short film called The Jones Plantation, which makes the point even further, but he's developing it into a full feature film because the message is so powerful. And so I'll definitely be um, contributing to Larkin Rose's effort there, um, and those links are all shared. Okay, just before I get into today's topic, I just want to finish with a couple of words on Peterson. I kind of... I brushed over the uh, CV values topic in the last uh, episode because I was focused more on the eulogy values conversation. But I want to just not leave out a couple of major points that Peterson has made consistently around um, careers. And uh, just this is like a footnote to last episode. But he regularly made the point that, you know, people. Want to put career for it. First of all, he makes the point of like putting career ahead of family. If you do that for too long, you really uh, you're in trouble in your later years because family is really what sustains you eventually. The other point he's constantly making, because his students would have been all in their uh, late teens or early twenties, and he's constantly making the point that you know career is a bit of a fiction. Career makes you think like you've got some sort of control over over your journey. I mean, career is something that you've got when you look back and you connect all the dots and you've got sort of a coherent narrative of what you've done with these opportunities. But really, when you're heading out in your life, there, you, you, all, the best you can hope for is a series of great opportunities that you make the most of. And he's constantly making that point, that, that career is a, is a fictional entity. I think we, had this, uh, we covered this topic in the earliest podcasts. But the other point I don't want to leave out about Peterson and following your passion and these things, I think he would consider his life's work. Before he got into the biblical series and before he got into the gender pronouns, I think he would consider his life's work, his work on maps of meaning, his book, Maps of Meaning. It took him 10 years to write or something. It's very, very dense. And that's really what brought him into the biblical series as well. But he was trying to identify... Once you discover that the life is rife with suffering, you know how do you go on? Almost, and I'm not gonna even come close to summarizing, but I just want to make a few of his points, and this is why he gets into chaos and order. But he one of the, one of his points is that the sense of meaning that you get when you're lost in a task that 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 you've got the right combination of like one foot in the known and one foot in the unknown and is taking you somewhere that is meaningful to you that sense of meaning uh, he's uh, he's said a number of times is the most real thing that's a that's a that's a sense that we have we that we don't talk about very much but we know it when we when we experience it you lose all sense of time you lose all sense of drudgery it's you're just effortlessly Executing a task, and uh, you're nicely on that balance between chaos and order. And really, that I think he he was trying to make that case in the maps of meaning, um, and he's consistently done it since then in his talks. He makes the point. I think it's I think it's a Jungian quote. Uh, he who has a why can bear any how. So that's that's kind of his fundamental point around. Overcoming the suffering of life when you when you take on enough responsibility that Getting up in the morning and tackling that next task is is meaningful enough to sustain you So I didn't want to leave out those kind of points that he's got around that body of work without I mean I was just did a little bit of an injustice because I glossed over that in terms of his his contribution to that space and I've, now I've tacked on a really nice piece from Michael Jones. It's an unbelievable summary of our times. It's powerful to me, but it ends on an ominous tone, and I want to make sure that I tell you what that's about in case you find it disturbing. But he's making the point that we've been down this road before, that we've, in different pockets of the world, people have woken up. To controllers, keeping them down, and handled it in different ways. The Catholic, the Catholics had a teaching on this exact topic in the late 1800s. He he explains all the history and all the uh, milestones in his talk at the end here. But what he's saying at the very end is, if we don't handle it in a constructive fashion, that means the uh, Jewish community managing themselves as well as the Christian community handling the situation constructively, once the awareness gets down to the people that have been suffering the most, I mean, all bets are off how they're going to handle the situation. <laughs> once you once you become aware of the, the mechanisms that have been used to keep the working people down and in the state of constant drudgery, and now we're getting to the health, I mean, people with their friends and relatives passing away and things they're doing and vaccines, children, and, I mean, you name it, you know, there will be outrage when the awareness gets to a certain point. So he's saying, let's not let it get to the pitchforks and torches. (laughs) That's what he's saying at the the end, in my opinion. That's the point he's making, but you, you can come to your own judgment. Okay, now, the opening pieces I really struggled to try and find the right clips for what I wanted to try and say. So I'll just describe what I wanted to try and say with those opening clips. And you can judge for yourself if if uh, you think it worked or not. <laughs> it was visual. In the movie The Island, so those opening clips, that was de- The Departed with Leo DiCaprio and Mark Wahlberg. And it was Inception with Leo DiCaprio. But the... In the island, they handled what I was—the point I was trying to make—visually, uh, and that was they've got this futuristic, uh, idyllic, manicured, sterilized environment that is the product of some mad scientist's mind. And even in the in the island clip that I have used in the past, they—I mean, you know—they've they've taken care of every whim so that. The people inside the system can't think of what to complain about. They just know there's something not quite right, right? That's really what I want to try and explore. And that is that this encroaching nanny state that we keep inviting the nanny state into our lives on every little issue, now it's every little issue, is coming from this fear of freedom that's really, really hard to explain and describe and it's really hard when you're talking to somebody that's deeply 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 inside what i would call the matrix which is like you've got the death contract of the mortgage and you've got the corporate job to pay the bills and you're like trying to squeeze a life in you know um you're sharing the kids with your ex-wife and you're trying to squeeze a life in on like saturday afternoons and tuesday night hockey or whatever it's really, really difficult to explain what freedom is, because somebody with that life, their uh, imagination of freedom is you get to pay all the bills, you get to relax, maybe get some reward on the job, and, uh, you know, someday your retirement comes in and you can retire somewhere quasi-comfortable, and uh, everybody thinks you're a decent guy. You know, that's that's. So when you're trying to talk to someone like that and explain that you're you're trapped inside a death grip, inside a matrix, and you don't even know. You're not even aware. I mean, you talk about freedom, they're just like, they can't even comprehend. They can't even imagine. So in the island, the visually the way they showed it to me was, they're like flashing back and forth to this futuristic, idyllic, sterilized environment. And then the, the, the two, uh, Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson, break out. And they catch up with Steve Buscemi at his neighborhood bar. And then they go back to Steve Buscemi's apartment with his girlfriend. And those are all kind of... It's out in the desert. It's dodgy. It's no frills. Like chips and sawdust kind of a bar of rough people. And then the apartment is completely modest. The girlfriend is completely modest. Everything is just mundane. But there's something about it that's so much more alive than the sterilized environment they came from. They love it. You know, to me, when they... When the girlfriend serves them a Coke, you can almost taste the Coke. Like it just, everything is alive outside, outside of the, outside of the bubble. You know, when they go back, and I guess this is the Plato's cave. This is the, the story behind the Plato's cave. When they go back and they try and explain to their people that are still trapped in the sterilized environment, they don't even know what they're talking about. They just think they've lost their mind and they would like to eliminate them at first. At least that's what happened in the Logan's run. In the island, I guess their their own peers weren't trying to kill them, but still, they they really struggled to <laughs> to wake them. And so the best example I can give for my own personal life of experience, and that when you've experienced it the first few times, you you don't really know why. It's just you you can just sort of sensually explain that there's something happening <laughs> until you until you do it enough, I guess. But if you've got your corporate job and you're in your comfortable uh, temperature controlled life and you've got the routine happening and everybody's happy that you're in your, you're, you're the square peg in the square hole and you're just in your place in the matrix and everybody kind of knows what they're going to get when they think of you. Um, and then somehow you're luck, you're lucky or, uh, or you may take a break. You either get sent on a business trip for a month to a third world, or maybe you take a gap, uh, to the third world. And from the first moment, like in the departure area of the first flight, everything is chaos and unpredictable. From that point on, for every day, every moment, completely unpredictable. Somebody ends up serving you a cold Coke, it's the best beverage you've ever had in your life. Because you're just like singing hallelujah that something worked, you know. It's like that. So the point is, slow, and it happens so slowly you can't even tell. But we sterilize our own environment. We willingly, step by step, try and eliminate these little unknowns, these little chaotic random moments. Uh, You can really, really experience this when you go from San Diego over to Mexico and the Tijuana border. On one side, you've got these guys that are sweating it out, selling all kinds of trinkets at the border. It's 50 degrees heat, and they're unbelievably happy to be doing their hustle, And and they're They're very, very alive. And you get across the border of San Diego, everything's manicured, but everybody's predictable and sort of, uh, there's just sameness. You know, nobody's had an inspired, inspirational thought or creative moment, you know, in uh, in years. That's how it feels. So in Mexico, these guys are just living on the edge, but they're alive. San Diego, it's like sort of drone land. It's sort of... um, stepford wives kind of i'm not talking about the wives i'm just talking about in general the whole community so what i believe is happening we slowly 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 agree to sort of delegate the randomness and de- delegate the risks and like get these vending people off the roads you know these all these little bylaws or homeowners associations or whatever system or life insurance or whatever system that you're inviting into your life to sort of protect yourself from the randomness but over time, you're slowly throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and you go visit India or somewhere, and it drives you crazy because you don't have any idea what's happening at any time, but you're alive. You go to the marketplace, the place is just singing with colors and smells and people that are, that are uh, in their culture and in the now completely. So I think it's it's an inner fear of freedom. There's an inner fear of freedom, and some of it is a fear of realizing your own soul. It's, it's a fear. And, and that clip with The Departed at the beginning, I thought that was... They're threatening to delete Leo DiCaprio's file, his character's file. I mean, he flipped out, right? Because that's his soul. To him, that's his soul. They're saying, like, maybe you're never going to be a regular guy. <laughs> you never get to be you again. You're just going to be a... You know, you're going to get locked away as a mafioso. They're talking about eliminating his soul connection. And I, I, I mean, I think that's actually what the toxins and poisons and vaccines, that's actually what's happening. You're, you're getting people to slowly, and the meds, the antidepressants, all these things. You're getting people to slowly, slowly, slowly sterilize their life so they don't get the ups and downs of life. But you miss all the ups you're trying to shine out the imperfections quote unquote by somebody's standard and and you're at the very same time you're taking away the upside the free the moments of spontaneous freedom and spontaneous inspiration and ingenuity i would just try and summarize by describing a hell and describing a some kind of a, a heaven as best as we can we can conceive because even here i'm i'm in a a very major African port city now, a major city, and it's completely random. But what's happening, and I think the culture here has really protected the people in a lot of ways, but they they compare themselves. The whites come traveling and they drop their money. The, the Africans, this community, they've got everything. They've got sunshine, beach, uh, natural produce. They can go out and do their own hustle their understandable focus on feeding the kids turns into a, a kind of an envy culture where they're constantly able to manufacture discontent because they don't have as much as the next guy meanwhile you know in the world of abundance it's it, they they're just overflowing with abundance if they just lived in their simple fishing village they don't have to worry about any of that but it's catching in the, at least in the city there seems to be a lot of that scarcity mindset i mean some of it's real but some of it is manufactured coming through on on the major media so to me and peterson's personality uh i don't know if you call it a course but his self-authoring program where he runs you through the past present and future one of the exercises is describing your own your own hell and to me your own hell is sort of captured in that moment with mark Wahlberg and leo dicaprio in that scene where You've got people standing over you who've got control of your access to your own identity, so who you really are. They, I mean, the worst-case scenario and this is happening in families, it happens in cultures and happens in corporates. The worst-case scenario is the culture around you is motivated to extinguish that motiv- that hope, hopefulness. Inspiration, creativity, ingenuity, drive, motivation. When you've got a group of people around you who are conspiring, and I don't mean conspiring like, I just mean it, it, it's cultural. And, you know, in Australia they call it the tall poppy syndrome. Culturally, you're surrounded by a group of people who, they not only do they not want the best, they want to extinguish the best in you. They want to punish you for your best attributes that's pure that's pure hell that's a pure hell existence so the opposite of that would be what peterson recommends in life which is surround yourself with people who want the best for you and i think there's a sort of subtext there if there aren't any of those people around you just i mean you got to come up with your own guardian angels and be that be those people for yourself <laughs> essentially And that is like pat yourself on the back. Every single time your soul glimmers with some inspiration and ingenuity and you take a risk and it pays off and you fumble and fall and then you take a risk and it pays off. Because so many of our Western cultures are so uncomfortable with the randomness of what freedom really is. To me, freedom is that trip to the third world where everything exists. Freedom includes everything and freedom includes everyone. Anyone can do their own hustle and, and have a brilliant idea and make it. And then tragedy is never too far away because of all the all the randomness. You can have, uh, I've seen a number of times, just a random major fist bite almost breaking out. <laughs> the guys, there's an awareness that, you know, they don't want it to get to that point. But you will never see that in a Western culture. And that's because people are just, to me, they're just so dronized. I believe strongly, the current situation in terms of the measures, especially now that the entire story is completely debunked. So to me, it's not a matter of uh, being misinformed anymore. Western people in the Western world are no longer misinformed. They are just cowardly because they don't want to face the truth of what they just witnessed. So I strongly believe you only have two moral choices in that situation. And it's the exact same thing with a bully. I mean, in a bully scenario, if you keep giving him your lunch money, they're just going to keep coming back and coming for more, right? What's the only way to handle the bully scenario? You get 10 of your friends and you stand up to them and then you deal with them with whatever mechanism you have. Hopefully, in that case, it would be the principal's office. I believe you only really have two moral choices. You, And it's just a matter of, the personality. But the first moral choice, especially if you have small children, is pull out of the grid completely. Take all your soul energy out of the grid and find a way to go off grid to the best of your ability. Dollar Vigilante, at the end of his videos, he had a perfect slogan. He's changed it now. The, The new one's good too, but the old one was get private. So in other words, like Get all the spy systems out of your life, Apple and Google and YouTube and Facebook. Get crypto, so whether or not it's crypto, but definitely off-grid source of savings. Um, And then his also included weapons. You know, in the U.S., you definitely want to be considering that. And then get gone, like just disappeared geographically. So to me, that's one moral choice, getting a small group together and going off-grid and supporting each other in the process. The other moral choice is to stay and fight, and that's civil disobedience, speaking out, activists, organizing. The immoral choice is to carry on, going along with the bullies and muttering under your breath that you don't agree with it, like the coach in the halftime and the football game. And these are middle-aged men we're talking about. And they think that there's some adult somewhere that's going to come in and save them. They're just going to keep going along with it, and then the adults will save them. I mean, I really think that's somewhere deep down in their makeup. That's not happening. You're the adult in your life. The future and the kids are depending on your moral choice at this time. And it's World War III, so you decide how you want to conduct yourself. But I believe those are the two moral choices and they're both a version of pulling your soul energy out of the grid in both cases. But if you keep feeding the grid and going along with it, it doesn't matter what you say under your breath, it's meaningless. It's completely meaningless if it's not lined up with pulling your energy out of it in every way you can and helping others any way you can, in my humble opinion. So that's it. I didn't mean it to sound too heavy, but P- or, uh, the, the Michael Jones piece, I want to leave lots of time for that and energy, and please enjoy, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Enjoy. <laughs> and as painful as it is, Logos is definitely rising.
1: My name is E. Michael Jones. I'm the editor of Culture Wars magazine and the author of numerous books, all of which were banned from Amazon. That means both paper books like The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and e-books like the Chievelta Katolika series on the Jewish question, which was originally published in 1890. That e-book is now available again online at culturewars.com. At the end of Euripides' play, The Bacchae, Cadmus asked his daughter Agave, what do you see? Agave is sitting center stage with the severed head of her son Pentheus on her lap. Pentheus, king of Thebes, was torn limb from limb by the women of Thebes as they danced naked on the mountainside, worshipping the Asiatic god Dionysus. Still intoxicated by the revelry that led to her son's death, Agave says it's a lion's head, a trophy for the palace. At this point, Cadmus says look carefully, study it more closely. As the intoxication wears off, Agave recognizes what she has done and answers, I see horror, I see suffering, I see grief. Does it still look like a lion? Cadmus asked. No, it's Pentheus, I am holding his head you were mad cadmus tells his daughter the city was possessed by dionysus at this point agave awakes to the full consequences of her actions i see now she says dionysus has destroyed us america went through its own bout of dionysian intoxication in the days following may 25th when a minneapolis cop by the name of derek chauvin knelt on the neck of a 46 year old black man by the name of george floyd Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose, but the media blamed his death on Chauvin. Corrupted by 66 years of bad education, America's black proletariat erupted in an orgy of rioting that brought the rule of law to an end in many of America's large cities. The rioting was based on an incident, and the incident was captured in an image. What did Americans see when they saw Officer Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck? They saw racism. Palestinians who watched the same video, however, saw something else. They recognized the knee hold that Officer Chauvin inflicted on Floyd as the same technique which Israeli police routinely used on Palestinians. Missing from the mainstream account of Floyd's death was any mention of the role which Anti-Defamation League played in weaponizing the Minneapolis Police Department. The ADL has been pressuring police departments across the country for years to train with Israeli instructors to learn submission techniques like the knee on the throat hold, but more importantly, the policemen who are subjected to the Israelification of local police forces learn more than techniques, they learn attitudes, and the main attitude they learn is that they should treat their fellow citizens, the people who fund their local police departments with their tax money, in the same way that Israelis treat Palestinians. If the image of Officer Chauvin kneeling on the neck of a black man symbolized white racism, then the image of George Floyd symbolized the black man as victim of that racism, and Black Lives Matter as his champion. But here, appearances are deceiving as well because Jews are behind this side of the equation as well. During the time leading up to the riots in Ferguson, Missouri, George Soros gave Black Lives Matter $33 million. The ADL is involved on this side of the conflict as well. With Israel's annexation of the West Bank looming, the ADL is concerned that the backlash that the annexation is sure to cause might spread to its proxy warriors and Black Lives Matter, as in fact did happen in England. The Stakeholders' Analysis Memo, which was issued by the ADL's Government Relations, Advocacy, and Community Engagement Department and marked as a draft, warns that the group will need to find a way to defend Israel from criticism without alienating other civil rights organizations, elected officials of color, and Black Lives Matter activists and supporters. The memo suggests that the group hopes to avoid appearing openly hostile to public criticism of annexation while it works to block legislation that harshly censures Israel or leads to material consequences such as conditioning United States military support. The ADL was not the only Jewish organization supporting Black Lives Matter. According to a report in the Jewish Telegraph Agency, More than 400 Jewish organizations and synagogues in the United States have signed on to a letter that asserts unequivocally Black Lives Matter. Those groups represented a broad spectrum of religious, political, gender, and racial identities. The list of signatories from small congregations to major Jewish organizations represents millions of Jewish people in the United States, the organizers, according to the statement. What name do we give to this involvement? In America, it was called the Black Jewish Alliance. For the 70 years following the lynching of Leo Frank, Jewish organizations like the Anti-Defamation League or ADL and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People or NAACP tried to foment race war in the United States. Permit me to say something about Leo Frank, the only Jew ever lynched in the United States. Frank was the president of a pencil company, in Atlanta, Georgia, who was found guilty of raping and then murdering Mary Fagan, a 13 year old employee. Because of his act, Leo Frank was condemned to death. At this point, the American Jewish community tried to save him in spite of his reputation as a sexual pervert. And after dragging a number of prominent citizens into the case, They succeeded in getting his sentence commuted in a way that was so scandalous that the citizens of Marietta, Mary's hometown, took the law into their own hands and captured and then lynched Leo Frank. This incident helped launch the ADL as a national organization. In 1986, Frank received a posthumous pardon from Ronald Reagan. The culmination of this campaign, launched by the Black Jewish Alliance, came in the 1960s with the creation of the Civil Rights Movement. But the Jewish revolutionary spirit goes back farther than that. It goes back to the foot of the cross, when the Jewish high priest Annas and Caiaphas told Jesus that they would accept him as their Messiah if he came down from the cross and created the earthly kingdom they wanted. He didn't do that, and the Jews chose Barabbas instead. By rejecting Christ as their Messiah, the Jews rejected the Logos Incarnate. And when they rejected the Logos, they rejected the order God created for this universe. And when they rejected that, they became revolutionaries, which is what they are today in places like St. Louis. St. Louis, Missouri was founded in 1764 by two French fur traders. Pierre Laclede and Auguste Chouteau, and named after King Louis IX of France. Over the course of the 19th century, it became the home to many Catholic immigrants from Ireland and Germany. Many Frenchmen fought against the revolution. They were known as Les Chouans, and their uprising was known as the Vendée. Some Frenchmen left France to escape the revolution. Many of them came to America, to cities like Quebec and Montreal and Canada, but also to cities like New Orleans and St. Louis in America. They did this to escape the revolution, but now the revolution has followed their descendants to places like St. Louis. A man by the name of Umar Lee wants to tear down the statue of St. Louis the and rename the city Confluence. As in Minneapolis, appearances are deceptive. Lee claims to be a Muslim, although he also claims to be a descendant of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. He claims to have the support of Black Lives Matter, but why should they hold a grudge against a French king from the 13th century? Did Louis IX own black slaves? Did he have secret cotton plantations in Paris? No. Of course not. Louis IX's crime was that he burned the Talmud. Do blacks care about the Talmud? Do they know what it is? Do they know about the blasphemies it contains? Which was the real reason it was burned? Probably not. As in Minneapolis, the group behind the protest is invisible. The Jewish revolutionary spirit is behind the protest in both cities. The battle in St. Louis is between Catholics and Jews, but Umar Lee as front man for the Jews must disguise this fact and turn the conflict into a battle between blacks and whites. We don't need for our children and our citizens to leave the art museum and be assaulted by the statue of King Louis Ninth. If you want to be a just city, you can't be named after a racist, an anti-Semite. Who was an anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, anti-black crusader. He does not need to be on public property overlooking our city. Uh, I'm not open to dialogue with Nazis and the far right uh, and people of that nature. Those are people you can't uh, have a reasonable discussion with, and that's what it is. This is a form of identity theft, It also leads to violence because once a group has white identity imposed upon it, the people in that group no longer have the right to free speech or assembly. This is precisely what happened in St. Louis. After Umar Lee turned a group of Catholics who had assembled to pray the rosary in defense of the statue into white people, Black Lives Matter showed up and felt entitled to beat up a 60-year-old Catholic who was trying to pray the rosary because white people have no rights. The revolution of 2020 in America is similar to the French Revolution because when the revolution came to France in 1789, Jewish involvement was not apparent. Abbe Augustin Barouel suppressed the Simonini letter which proved Jewish involvement when he wrote his memoirs illustrating the history of Jacobinism. and he exonerated the Whigs who used their weaponized Masonic Lodge to bring down the Bourbon monarchy and unleash first anarchy and then tyranny in France. Jewish involvement in the French Revolution didn't become apparent until Napoleon emancipated the Jews in 1806. In 1890, Chivota Cattolica, the official magazine of the Vatican, did a three-part series on the Jewish question in France one century after the French Revolution. Their conclusion was simple but stunning. Any country which turned away from the laws created by Christian kings that the French had done in 1789 would end up being ruled by Jews. Like Chivalta, Cattolica, Georg Ratzinger, the great uncle of Pope Benedict XVI, traced Jewish hegemony and finance to the French Revolution. Following Napoleon's emancipation of the Jews, Jews took over the economies of one nation after another in Europe because of their sharp business practices. What Ratzinger calls the Jewish practice of business life allowed them to cheat Christian natives who had been taught to work hard, be trusting, and love their neighbor. Jewish immorality in finance, in other words, gave the Jews an unfair economic advantage in Catholic countries. According to Ratzinger, the emancipation of the Jews, whose views and concepts contradicted the laws and customs of the Christian nations, could not help but have a destructive and corrupting effect on the entire Christian society. This fact alone explains why Jews are able to accumulate riches so quickly. The example of moral corruption has a contagious effect, and that explains the corrupting effect of Jewish influence on commerce. Ratzinger claimed that it was an act of supreme foolishness when the necessary protections for the social order were lifted in the years following 1789. Once this happened, it was only a matter of time before the Jews would gain the upper hand, because the business ethics they derived from their study of the Talmud taught them that cheating the Goyim was a virtue. This was particularly the case among the benevolent peoples who made up the population of Catholic nations who had been taught to work hard and trust civil authority as defending their interest. Once these people fell into the hands of the usurers, they found they could not extricate themselves from its tentacles in spite of their frugality because of the widespread acceptance of usury in the period following the French Revolution, just about everyone was impoverished and only the Jews got rich. Ratzinger's book appeared in 1892, shortly following the publication of Rerum Novarum, Pope Leo XIII's encyclical on the condition of the working classes, and the three-part series in Civita Cattolica, which warned Catholics about, quote, the voracious octopus of Judaism, unquote. The anger at Jewish business practices had reached the boiling point because those involved in the lucrative professions could amass riches at the cost of others in a few short years. This is the situation we find ourselves in today. America is in the middle of a revolution as in Russia in 1917, where the revolution succeeded, in Germany in 1919, where it was thwarted, and even in China, where the Cultural Revolution in 1966 was led by Jews like Sidney Rittenberg.
2: A revolution is not like inviting
0: guests to dinner. It can't be that civilized, that courteous, that gracious, that gentle.
2: And it wasn't. It wasn't.
1: Jews played the major role in the American Cultural Revolution of 2020. George Soros is one of those Jews. After helping to create color revolutions in virtually every country which separated from the Soviet Union, Soros is creating a colored revolution in the United States with the help of groups like Antifa, which has Jewish roots going all the way back to Germany in the 1930s and Black Lives Matter. Soros has also taken over large segments of local government by backing candidates for offices like District Attorney with money from the Open Society Foundation. Missouri Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner is one of those candidates. Gardner has crippled law enforcement in St. Louis by enforcing the law based on the color of the citizen. After one year in office, Gardner let it be known she would not prosecute marijuana crimes. In fact, in 2019, Gardner prosecuted only 1,000 of the over 7,000 cases the St. Louis Police Department submitted to her for prosecution. She then drove the governor from office and filed charges against the St. Louis Police Department under the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1865, accusing them of being a racist conspiracy. The Gardnersaurus connection is one of the best examples of the revival of the Black Jewish Alliance after its demise in 1967. Gardner also threatened to press charges against the couple who defended their house with firearms after the police refused to respond to their call when a black mob broke into their gated community. The outcome of the current revolution is uncertain at this moment. One of the main reasons for pessimism is the attitude of the Catholic Church toward its own saints and its own people. Outgoing Bishop Robert Carlson has defended the statue but his successor, Mitchell Rosansky of Springfield, Massachusetts, has yet to take a position on the issue. Since Rosansky is known as a proponent of Catholic-Jewish dialogue and a protege of the notorious Judeo-Field Cardinal Keeler of Boston, prospects for confronting the group responsible for the revolutionary vandalism in St. Louis look dim at best. We are now in a situation similar to the one which prevailed in the mid to late 1970s when one country after another fell to communism. That situation changed in the Annus Mirabilis of 1979 when the Ayatollah Khomeini led the overthrow of American materialism in Iran in February and Pope John Paul II led a similar uprising against Marxist materialism in Poland four months later. The same type of spiritual revolution can save the situation now, but only if the church abandons the failed experiment known as Catholic-Jewish dialogue and returns to a traditional teaching on the Jews. The Jews need to be confronted with their sins, as St. Peter did in the Acts of the Apostles when he told them that they killed Christ. The contemporary version of that accusation would include Jewish participation in both political and sexual revolutions, which have led to untold deaths under Marxism and unprecedented moral corruption under Wilhelm Reich, the Jew who created the term sexual revolution. Success in the culture wars will involve working for the Jews' conversion rather than begging in vain for their friendship and approval. It will involve asking the Jews of St. Louis if they agree with the revolutionary program that Rabbi Susan Talva has endorsed. The alternative is violence. Like Chivalta's series on the Jewish question, Ratzinger ended his book with a warning of what would follow if his call for reform were not heeded. Like Chivita's warning, Ratzinger found uncanny fulfillment less than 50 years in the future. As he put it, a reaction against the Jewification of our culture is now building momentum among the common man. That movement is hardly perceptible today, but is going to grow like an avalanche. That movement would be irresistible at this very moment if it weren't lacking a leader. Just in case you didn't know, the German word for leader
2: is Führer.